My name is Sally Finkelstein Horowitz, and I come from Poland. I was born in Zwolin, a small town. We were right smack in the center of Poland. We were very, very close to my grandmother. She was always with us. My house was always full of people because my grandmother was with us, so everybody was coming to my house, and um, nobody's left. Listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Nazi Germany invaded Poland on September 1, 1939. Two days later, 11-year-old Sally Finkelstein was playing outside with a friend when bombs started falling from the sky. The town was engulfed in flames. Sally and her sister helped their elderly grandmother escape into the woods. Within days of the bombing, German ground troops arrived. They forced the Jews of Zwolin and the Jews of neighboring towns into a ghetto. Nearly 40 years later, on May 2, 1979, Sally Finkelstein Horwitz is preparing to be interviewed by Laurel Vlock and Dory Laub. The location is Dory Laub's office in New Haven, Connecticut. Sally is sitting in a high-backed chair, wearing a taupe-colored blazer and a blue and red polka dot scarf loosely tied at the neck. Her frosted hair frames her round face. Sally recalls one morning in 1941. She and her family had been living in the Zwollen ghetto for two years. It was the second day of the Jewish holiday of Sukkot. We were sleeping, and all of a sudden we heard the church bells and um, trumpets and bands, whatever they did. And Yuda uh, Haraus, Sally Yudin Haraus, we all had to get out and meet in the marketplace. And um, there was a lot of shooting and a lot of hitting. And then they made us march 12 kilometers. And the people we stayed with in the ghetto times, one of their daughters, she was 17 or 18, and she was pregnant. She was very big. She must have been in the eighth or ninth month, and it was very warm. And she wore her father's trench coat, and her feet were very swollen. She wore big shoes. My mother and her mother and a few and her father and a few people made like a circle around her so that they shouldn't see her because they were afraid they'll do something to her. And my mother had uh, some water. She always used to give her a little bit of water. And then we came to the um, train station and we all sat down on the ground and they were joined, we were joined by people from different smaller cities and ghettos. And there were trains in back of us, we were all sitting on the ground, it must have been 10,000 people or so. And we could smell like chlorine from the trains, but we didn't know this was going to be for us. One of my sisters, oh, a few days before, was taken to a farm which was a few kilometers from my hometown. 
and one of the Germans was walking by where I was sitting and he pointed to me, he pointed I should get up and come raus. And my mother pushed my other sister, this was her fear always, go, go, you'll have to take care of her, she won't be able to wash her hair. This is the last words I remember. And he took out about 21 women, girls, and we walked another three miles to the farm where my sister was there. And we worked there on a potato farm. And uh, anybody who made a move was shot right away when they uh, had those big German shepherds always on us. And um, the food was horrible, naturally, but at least with those potatoes. And we picked potatoes from early in the morning to late at night. And then uh, when it got cold and there was no more potato picking, they took picked out about 35. And I was one of them, my sisters, my two sisters, and we were sent to Skarżysko. Skarżysko was worse than any concentration camp you can imagine. We worked in a factory, an ammunition factory. They used to wake us up very early in the morning and um, count. There was the counting, the counting, the counting used to drive us crazy. And then when we got to the factory, we were counted. And then when we came back, we were counted constantly, the counting. Now, if you stayed back, they shot you. So you had to go every day. And then people were getting sick. And uh, I had typhus very bad. My hair came out completely and there was no food naturally. They gave us a piece of bread, which wasn't bread. I don't know what it was, ersatz of some kind. It was one once a day, and once a day we got uh, some soup, which was like dirty water. And uh, so when uh, we were sleeping, they would um, they would walk us up one time. No, we were walking from work, and we saw I didn't even know what it was. They were building. It was a um, for hanging a scaffold. Now they hung at the time. I thought it was a man because I was young. The older I get, the younger the face looks. It was a boy. I don't know if he was 18 or 19 years old. And he did something. He stole a belt, a leather belt of some kind from the machines to fix his shoes. And therefore they put him and they hanged him. And we had to watch that boy be hanged. And they left him there for a very long time, for it seems for days. And he was hanging there. And somebody even took off his shoes. He must have been there for about three, four days or more. Then when the Russians started to come closer, they um, uh, separated us. They took some people to go on the trains and take them deep into Germany. And then some people were supposed to stay behind. So of course, I almost was separated from my sisters, which was terrible. And they had stationed guns to kill us, so nobody will see what they did because everybody looked terrible. But somehow the Russian armies came into fast for them. And in uh, 45, we were liberated. And, uh, but unfortunately, when we, the war ended, we were actually afraid to leave the place. It was a very funny feeling. The three of us were sitting holding hands. We were afraid to go out. We didn't know what's... Uh, it's very funny. Who's going to... What, what are we going to do? What are we going to find? Finally, when we did go out, we found we found something terrible, like nothing. And uh, the natives weren't too friendly either. I went back home. 
I thought my father was hiding in a village with my little brother, that he'll survive there. And I always, I was very, very attached to my father. He was, was over 6'4", he was a beautiful person and a beautiful human being. And I thought he'll survive there. And I always thought he'll need me. I'll, I'll have to help him. He'll six or like I am and he needs help. And this is what made me go. I came to the city, there were already a few people. And uh, they told me that my father, my little brother, was turned out to the Germans. My sister came to get me because the communications were bad. She says they were killing Jewish people. They killed at the time some people in Kelts. And um, my sister came to tell me that we have to get out of the small towns because they were killing the Jewish people. This was after the war. And uh, there's another thing which sometimes I've always said I would go to a priest and ask him why, because being uh, always going to a Catholic school, you're so interwoven with the uh, things that um, we gave um, to one of the Polish people there some of our uh, clothing and things to hold because we thought we'll come back uh, when they were going to the trains. And those people, and, you know, we lived with them for generations on the same street. And we got along very well with them. We didn't live in any ghettos or anything before the war. And I came in and I told her who I was. And she crossed herself when she saw me. And I asked her if she would mind to give me some, something to wear, any clothes, anything. And she swore that the Germans took everything away from her. She didn't offer me a glass of water or anything. And uh, I was staying across the street with my girlfriend. And on Sunday, her daughter walked to church wearing my aunt's coat. And this always bothers me, something terrible. And one of these days, maybe I'll get enough nerve up and go and ask a, a priest why. She crossed herself telling me she had nothing. And then she went to church wearing my aunt's coat. And she let me walk away with nothing. So we had to get out of Poland. And uh, I went back to the land of Germany. Would you believe it? I felt safe in Germany, only because we were the Americans, I suppose, we felt safer there. You didn't try to block it out. Uh, I can't. I, I can't. I'm not that person to block it out. I, um, I can't. I live it. I have like a panorama in front of me, constantly. I could be in a room full of people and... Um, if, uh, there was a time when I was, let's say, in Skarzysko, I didn't, I didn't talk at all. And um, I, just, I just couldn't believe it. I just didn't talk. It's funny, I'm thinking of it now, that um, how I split myself, that it wasn't me there. It just wasn't me. I was somebody else. It wasn't me. And then I was constantly talking after the war because then I realized I, I was afraid if I won't talk, I'll see everything. It's just like a panorama with all that stuff coming through my head. What would you see now? I see my father walking with my little brother or walking. I used to love to walk with him Saturdays in the fields. He used to show me things and explain things to me. Well, my little brother was very good. Even being six years old, he was carving things. My grandmother, she was in her 80s. She never would tell us how old she was. We just adored her. My aunts, so many aunts and uncles, were a very close, very close family and little cousins. And um, so I always think about those people. I don't have any pictures of them. 
I don't know, maybe I feel guilty that I'm here and they are not. Who knows? And then always wonder about my little brother or my father because the two of them were together. You always say, how did they die? What happened? Because we saw when they were, um, when uh, they took us out of uh, our home, home, room, that what they did, which a lot of people left their children in carriages, hoping somebody will take them. But nobody did. So they knew they were Jewish children. They just grabbed them, just threw them on the trucks. And the old people just threw them. And uh, cripples, they just right in front of us, just in the head, just shot in the head, just like, like there were no human beings. It's um, something you don't forget. And because uh, I came to the United States, I met my husband here. And we have three children. And uh, when I became pregnant with my children, I got terribly frightened. And um, every time I, I thought of that uh, woman, Rachel, Rachel Goldfarb was her name, what happened to her baby? What, uh, she was very close to having her baby. And uh, her face is always in front of me. What did they do to the baby? What did they do to her? Here I am, and I did have the children, because uh, I always said if um, that's what Hitler would want to, we shouldn't have any children, or we shouldn't uh, just disappear. So my children are named after my father, my brother, my mother, my sister. And uh, it seems I'll, I lived through my children, uh, the things what I hoped my little brother would be, maybe, or uh, my sister. And uh, I'm scared. What? Of something might happen again. I don't know, I'm just scared all the time. We have good veneers. We pretend a lot. Sally Finkelstein Horowitz devoted herself to her family and the Jewish community. She served as secretary of the Jewish Historical Society of New Haven and was vice president of Greater New Haven's Holocaust Survivors Fellowship. Sally took great pride in her three children, nine grandchildren, and seven great-grandchildren. Until age robbed her of her memory, she could name each of the more than 90 family members who perished in the Holocaust. Sally Finkelstein Horowitz died on February 18, 2014. She was 86 years old. To learn more about Sally Finkelstein Horowitz's life, please visit thosewhowerethere.org. That's where you'll find additional background information as well as photographs. To hear more from those who were there, Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to thosewhowerethere.org. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at Yale University Libraries, Manuscripts, and Archives Department. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, and the Archives Director Stephen Naren. 
Thank you to audio engineer Jeff Town and to Christy Tomachek, Joshua Green, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. Thanks as well to Sam Cassow for historical oversight and to our social media team, Christiana Pena and Nick Porter. Liova Gerbin composed our theme music. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. Thank you.